time for our journey to begin. You walk through our forests, yet you remain a mystery. What are you? And you hide. we call wilderness, there lives a creature that has become one with legend. Fans of the spoken word, greetings to you. My name is Clinton, and this podcast is known as OK Talk. Matt Stoker is ill and has been ill for a while. We fear the worst. Zika has been mentioned as a probable cause. And because of that, Matt will not be joining me this evening. Hopefully, he will before too long. Get well, little buddy. We miss you. Before we get going tonight, I want to tell you guys about a really cool opportunity that you still have a few days to take advantage of. And that is the Boggy Creek Monster Kickstarter campaign, which you can visit by going to kickstarter.com and searching for Small Town Monsters or Boggy Creek Monster. Look, it comes down to this. If you donate $8 or if you pledge $8, it's not like you're donating anything. You can get a copy of the newest documentary on the legend known as Bigfoot, The Beast of Whitehall, for eight bucks a full month before it's released. I'm the narrator of said documentary. All I can say is every dollar that gets pledged, every buck that is put into this Kickstarter, goes directly into making another documentary about Falk, Arkansas and the Boggy Creek Monster. Now look, I don't know what's going on. There seems to be this whole thing in this community, you know what community I speak of, that seems to fraction itself off for whatever reason. Here's the thing, I don't get if you're into Bigfoot and you're into Sasquatch, why would you be so against new projects about what you're into? It makes absolutely no sense to me. I've just seen a lot of stupid negative stuff lately online and that's probably what's skewing my judgment. I just don't get it. I don't get why some people would be so against the creation of something new and truthful about what you're into. I don't get it. To quote the great Jim Morrison, when the music's over, turn out the lights. So anyway, I don't know anything about all that stuff, but The Beast of Whitehall is awesome. And I know if you're listening to me, you will enjoy it. You can get it for eight bucks at Kickstarter. One more rant real quick. Thanks 
so much to those of you who have taken the time to share your feelings about the show in iTunes and other places. We really appreciate it. The main reason that we ask that you do that is it helps people locate the show. It uh, brings attention to this product. If you like what you hear, please let us know about it. Let the world know about it. Thanks for listening to OK Talk. Listen, if you're not going to buy anything, I have to ask you to move on. Thank you. But we're not customers. We're actually here on a rare personal appearance t-shirt signing. We're Tenacious D. Greatest band on earth. I was in a band once, a couple of bands. Yep, I've seen it all. I drove a car into a hotel room once. Had a three-way with a pair of Siamese twins. Ate an entire horse. That's pretty kick-ass. That's a cream dream. That's not the whole story. 1967, I'm on stage at the Fillmore East. Jimi Hendrix is backstage throwing up. Mama Cass is stirring a pot of her famous spaghetti pie. Janis Joplin's washing dishes and throwing up. And then the cops burst in. As I'm trying to get out the back door, this girl with a glass... My guitar's on fire. I've been up all night shooting cheese balls. That's cocaine and cheese. When I woke up the next morning, I was in a Russian prison. Total setup. It's a cream dream. That's not it at all. The whole rock star mythos is a lie. It'll lead you nowhere. It's like when you believe in the Easter Bunny or the Sasquatch. No. You mean Sasquatch isn't real? Look. Look at me. I'm your future. Let the dream die. Let the dream die. Let it die. Let the dream die. Come on, Jack. Let's go. Most of the psychological community agrees there are five stages a person must go through when confronting death. The first stage is anger. Fucking Captain Ed. Joint sucker. Fucking cock smoker. Probably not even a captain. Did you see how fucking fat that fucking lard ass was? The second stage is denial. Jack, our world tour is just around the corner. We've got to make a list of our backstage demands. Okay, M&M's. Two red for every blue. Seven strippers. Three for Kyle, three for Jack. One floater. And one retired astronaut. Good. Kyle, could you stretch out your arm? I'm measuring you for our tuxes. For what? For Grammy night, buddy. You don't want to go looking like a hayseed. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, Right. The third stage, door-to-door rocking. I love you, baby, but all I can think about is Kielbasa sausage, your butt cheeks is warm Okay, thank you I checked my dipsticks, you need lube The fourth stage, temp job Canadian yarn art It sells itself, fellas Now get out there and sell it The fifth stage, 
acceptance. Goodbye, brown eyes. We wrote some classic ones. We knocked them on their ass. No, I want you to look over there. I'm gonna tell you about the rabbits. Can you see him, brown eyes? Can you see him? <laughs> Kyle. The rock star mythos is a lie. It's like when you believe in the Easter Bunny or the Sasquatch. <laughs> There were some scientists trying to figure out the Sasquatch riddle. Then they figured out it was a missing link. In search of Sasquatch, that was a kick-ass in search of. With Leonard Nimoy kicking out the jams. Huh? He captured imaginations of people all around the globe. His name was Sasquatch, so I'm told. His legend's ancient in the ancient scribe of the Indian tribe. Apache tribe. Scientists have proven that the Sasquatch is real. Take a look at the plaster cast of his foot, now you know he's real. Listen real close to the audio tape, not human, now you know he's real. Couldn't be a man in gorilla suit, no fucking way, now you know he's real. Real, 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 really real, real. Don't take this personally, because it's not about your playing. No, dude, your drumming is kick-ass. It's just that the D, it's always just been me and KG. And we're just not comfortable being a power trio. I hope there's no hard feelings. first gorilla was seen by a white man in the early part of the last century, the reaction to the news was one of natural astonishment. 
Native stories about such creatures were well known, but have been largely written off as mythology. The actual discovery of these enormous, intelligent, and sensitive animals was a fresh reminder that the wilder regions of the Earth could still hold surprises for man. The amazing coelacanth, fished out of the Indian Ocean in 1952, caused just as much of a shock, for it was believed to have been extinct nearly 100 million years before. The pygmy hippopotamus, the white rhinoceros, the giant panda, and the Komodo dragon are other recent discoveries of heretofore unknown wildlife. Yet these creatures have been no secret to the natives of the regions they inhabit. The tough, abrasive skin of the coelacanth, for instance, was used by natives of Madagascar in place of sandpaper for mending punctures in bicycle tires. So how many more creatures may yet turn out to be legendary, as always supposed, but real? Are there other living fossils, even missing links, in the story of evolution still hiding away in the remotest regions of the globe? There is certainly a wealth of folklore to suggest so. From the still mysterious mountains of the west coast of North America to the snowy slopes of the mighty Himalayas, there exist stories and evidence of the most intriguing creature that walks this earth. It is called variously Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Chukpa, Alma, Meti, Kangmi, Mingo, and dozens of other names. It's also achieved international fame as the Yeti or the Abominable Snowman. The existence of the Yeti was first reported to the West in 1832 by an adventurous Brit, B.H. Hodson, who went to live among the Nepalese high in the Himalayas. Hodson wrote about a tall, erect, ape-like creature covered in thick hair. But those who read his reports believed the sightings were simply of a large langur monkey or the Himalayan red bear. It was not until 1887 that an outsider first saw direct evidence of the existence of the Yeti. Another Brit, Major Lawrence Waddell, of the Indian Army Medical Corps, told of remarkable footprints he had seen in Sikkim, said to be the trail of one of the hairy wild men who live in the eternal snows. When an international mania for mountaineering broke out in the 1920s and 30s, more details of a remarkable Yeti were brought back by expeditions. These expeditions sought to conquer the unknown peaks of the Himalayas, and it was at this time that a journalist coined the name Abominable Snowman. According to the stories of Nepalese villagers, Tibetan Lamas, and Hardy Sherpas, Yetis had always lived along the snow line that separates the thickly wooded slopes of the Himalayas from the desolate icy wastes above. Their terrain was between 12,000 and 20,000 feet, and they were assumed to live in caves and to emerge mainly at night. The animals were said to be anything up to 12 feet high, yet extremely agile. They walked erect with a loping gait, their long arms swinging by their sides. Their heads were slightly conical, and their pale, virtually hairless features were half ape-like, half human. Their bodies were covered in thick, coarse hair, the color of a red fox. They were said to be shy and to approach human habitation only when driven by hunger. Their diet was mainly lichen and rodents, and they disemboweled their prey before eating it, a peculiarly human trait. They made a loud, yelping howl when alarmed. This, then, 
was the abominable snowman, as represented by local inhabitants. But where was the proof? Tibetan Lama monasteries were said to contain scalps, skins, and even mummified bodies of the creatures. But no Westerner had been able to remove one of these relics for analysis. The only evidence was the reports of the natives until, in 1921, Colonel C.K. Howard Burry became the first European to see the Yeti. He was leading a British expedition attempting to scale Mount Everest when he and his men spotted a strange group of creatures at about the 17,000-foot plateau on the Lapkala Pass. When they reached the spot, they found footprints in the snow. Each of them were about three times the size of a human print. The colonel was told by a Sherpas that the tracks were those of the Yeti, but despite his own descriptions of the prints, the skeptical Englishman could not bring himself to believe they were caused by a Yeti and instead attributed them to a wolf. Further sightings followed. One scientific expedition reported seeing an ape-man pulling roots out of the ground. There was a report of a 13-year-old girl being kidnapped by a Yeti, and of a Yeti being sighted carrying a crude bow with arrows. In 1936, the expedition of Ronald Kolbeck confirmed the widespread existence of the mysterious footprints. And a year later, the first photograph allegedly showing a Yeti's footprint was taken by Frank Smythe and was published around the world. During World War II, five Polish prisoners being held in a Siberian labor camp escaped from their Soviet captors and made an incredible march across Mongolia and Tibet to Bhutan, where in 1942, they crossed the Himalayas to India and to safety. There they recounted a strange episode which had occurred in the mountains. They said they had looked down from a ledge and had seen two burly ape men only a few feet away. The creatures were aware that they were being observed but showed no emotion whatsoever and seemingly ignored the strangers, continuing to shuffle through the snow. The Poles watched the creature for fully two hours and their description fits those of most previous witnesses. A pair of less friendly ape creatures were encountered by two Norwegian prospectors in Zamu Gap, India in 1948. One of the men, Ja Frostus, said he was badly mauled about the shoulder by the larger of the beasts. But the Norwegians were armed, and when they opened fire, the creatures fled. It was another story to intrigue the world, coming as it did from a largely unexplored region of the globe. But it was, after all, just a story, right? Apart from the inconclusive 1937 photograph, there was no documented evidence about the abominable snowman's existence. All of that changed in 1951. On the 8th of November, veteran mountaineer Eric Shipton was climbing in the Gwari Sankar range with fellow Brit Michael Ward and their Sherpa, Sin Tin Singh, when they came across a series of clear footprints on the Minlung Glacier at an altitude of 18,000 feet. They were made by a creature with a flat foot and five toes one of them much enlarged. The prints were 13 inches long and eight inches wide and indicated a creature about eight feet tall. A further run of prints was also photographed, but these were less conclusive and it was later suggested that they were made by a running mountain goat and were later grotesquely enlarged by the action of the sun. But the first set of photographs and Shipton's impeccable credentials convinced many and new interest was aroused. 
Scientists examined a mummified finger and thumb found in Pengbok, Nepal, and declared it to be from a Neanderthal man. Then, in 1952, Everest was finally conquered by Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa, Ten Singh. But although Hillary found prints, he's always denied the existence of the abominable snowman. Two years later, the London Daily Mail sent an expedition to the Himalayas to try to prove or disprove the existence of the Yeti once and for all. Sadly, it did neither. The team did, however, discover several Yeti scalps covered in horse red hair. The llamas who were custodians of these relics allowed the expedition to remove a few of the hairs. They were later analyzed and scientists were unable to identify the creature to which they belonged. The Daily Mail expedition also found several footprints and droppings containing part animal and part vegetable material. A further expedition sponsored by a Texas oil man, Thomas Slick, took up the trail in 1957. They too found tracks and were told by Nepalese villagers that yetis had recently killed five people in the area, but of the creatures themselves, they saw no sign. In 1970, British mountaineer Don Willans spent a day photographing mysterious but inconclusive tracks at the height of 13,000 feet in the mountains of Nepal. That night, he saw by clear moonlight an ape-like creature bounding along a nearby ridge, sometimes on all fours. And in 1973, a young Sherpa girl was attacked by a yeti. She had been tending a small herd of yaks when the creature pounced from some undergrowth and knocked her unconscious. When she came round, five of the yaks were dead. Hey. Hey, how's the new place? Gone. The uh, tenant association made me give it to this guy because he was an Andrea Doria survivor. Andrea Doria? Isn't that the one they did the song about? Edmund Fitzgerald. I love Edmund Fitzgerald's voice. <laughs> No, Gordon Lightfoot was the singer, Edmund Fitzgerald was the ship. You could fit 15 people in that bathroom. I think Gordon Lightfoot was the boat. Yeah, and it was rammed by the Cat Stevens. The Andrea Doria collided with a Stockholm in dense fog 12 miles off the coast of Nantucket. How do you know? It's in my book, Astonishing Tales of the Sea. 51 people died. 51 people? Mm -hmm. That's it? I thought it was like a thousand. Well, 1,660 survivors. That's no tragedy. Well, how many people do you lose on a normal cruise? 30, 40? Grandma, can I take a look at that book? Oh, yeah. I also got Astounding Bear Attacks. The Yankee whaling ship, Herald, was cruising off the west coast of Greenland, inside the Arctic Circle. From the bridge, Captain Warren peered ahead at a three-masted schooner drifting through the ice flows like a ghost ship. Warren took eight men in a longboat and rowed to the silent vessel. Through the encrusted ice, they could make out the schooner's name. Octavius. Warren and four of his sailors boarded the schooner. They crossed the silent, moss-covered decks, opened a hatch, and descended to the crew's quarters, 
There they found the bodies of 28 men, all lying on their bunks and heavily wrapped in blankets. They fumbled their way aft to the captain's cabin, where the nightmare continued. The master of the Octavius slumped over the ship's log, a pen closed into his right hand, as if he had dozed off at work. On a bed against one wall of the cabin, a blonde woman lay frozen to death under piles of blankets. And in the corner, there was a sailor and a small boy whose bodies told a tragic story. The sailor sat with his flint and steel clutched in frozen hands. In front of him was a tiny heap of shavings, silent evidence of a fire that had failed to ignite. The little boy crouched close to him, his face buried in the seaman's jacket, as if he had huddled there in pathetic search for warmth. The men from the Herald clambered back onto the deck, taking with them the schooner's logbook as if proof of what they had found. Back aboard the whaler, they could only watch helplessly while the derelict schooner drifted away from them among the icebergs, never to be seen again. It was a good idea that they had taken that logbook. The world would not be ready to accept their story, which remains one of the most astonishing tales of the sea. The last log entry was dated November 11, 1762. The dying captain wrote that the Octavius had been frozen in for 17 days. The fire had gone out, and they failed to restart it. The location of this ship at the time, said the captain, was longitude 160 west, latitude 75 north. Captain Warren looked at the charts in disbelief. In those last hours of human life, the ship had been locked in the Arctic Ocean, north of Point Barrow, Alaska, thousands of miles from where the whaler had found her. Guided by some unknown force, Year after year, the battered schooner had crept steadily eastward through the vast ice fields until she entered the North Atlantic. In doing so, she had then achieved the dream of all mariners. For centuries, men had sought this legendary Northwest Passage, a navigable route around the Arctic Ocean between the Atlantic and the Pacific. On that historic 13-year voyage, the ghost ship Octavius with her crew of frozen dead had been the first to find it. If there are ghosts of people who die, can ships also become spirits? Captain Dusty Miller came close to answering that question, but he took his knowledge to a watery grave when his yacht, the Joyita, sank in 1955. For in the months before his last voyage in the South Seas, something unknown had stalked him and his ship. Passengers reported that another ship was following in their wake, moving along mysteriously through the darkness with no lights or sound. The ghostly ship had a high superstructure aft, but otherwise could be described as only looking like an ancient galleon from the time of Columbus. When Captain Miller glimpsed her in his binoculars on a voyage to Pago Pago, his face turned deathly white. He ordered the running lights turned off and took over the helm himself, heading the Joyita into a squall. When the weather cleared, there was no sign of the ghostly galleon. 
The Joyita had the reputation of being an unlucky yacht, and Dusty knew this when he bought her. Roland West, a film producer with RKO Studios, had built her in the first blaze of Hollywood's glory and named her Joyita, Spanish for Little Jewel, in honor of his actress sweetheart, Jewel Carmen. The romance fizzled and bad luck began to haunt the yacht even before her launching in 1931. Workmen building the yacht fell from the rigging and died. And the Portuguese widow of one of the victims publicly laid a curse on the yacht and its owner. On her maiden voyage to Catalina Island, the ship was towed back into port after a disastrous engine room fire. The Joyita was sold and went into charter service. The great stars of the screen were among those who had sailed in her. But when a passenger mysteriously vanished, nobody wanted to know the boat anymore. The United States Navy took her over in World War II, but put her back into dry dock when she kept running aground. Even out of service, her record was grim. A caretaker died from battery acid fumes. There was a series of unexplained fires, and two men were killed in a fight aboard her. Sold as war surplus, the now shabby yacht went from owner to owner. Dusty Miller had bought her with his last few dollars. On October 3, 1955, the Joyita put to sea for the last time from Apia Harbor in western Samoa. Held in port by order of unhappy creditors, she had almost rusted away for months before Miller could persuade them to let him take her out. The Joyita carried desperately needed food and medical supplies for the islanders of Fukayofo, 200 miles north, and she was to bring back 70 tons of copra. Besides the crew of 16, there were nine passengers aboard the yacht. Samoans living on the waterfront later claimed that minutes after her departure, they saw a huge, dark vessel gliding in the Joyita's wake. She was enormously high abaft, and unlike any ship seen in those waters, she was traveling without lights and with no sound of motor, but she moved at an incredible speed. Nothing was heard of the Joyita until November 10th, 1955, when another freighter found her lying abandoned 90 miles north of Fiji. She had a 55-degree list to port, and one rail was totally awashed. Radio gear was smashed, the logbook was missing, and there was no recognizable message. But carefully placed signal flags in the rigging spelled out the letters WNQV. To this day, investigators have not been able to discover what this may have meant. No bodies were found in the flooded compartments, and the fate of the 25 persons aboard remains unknown. In Suva, where the wreck was pumped out, marine inspectors found no answers. The tail of the mysterious ship was put down to native superstition, although it had been government men aboard the Joyita who had first reported the ghostly vessel. But the sailors of the South Sea ports still have no doubts. They still see a clear link between the doomed Joyita and the strange dark galleon. From another age.
The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down Up the big lake they call Gitchagumi The lake it is said never gives up her dead When the skies of November turn gloomy With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more Than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed When the gales of November came early The ship was the pride of the American side Coming back from some mill in Wisconsin As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most With a crew and good captain well seasoned Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms When they left fully loaded for Cleveland Then later that night when the ship's bell rang Could it be the north wind they'd been feeling? Tattletale sound and the wave broke over the railing. And every man knew as the captain did too, twas the witch of November come stealing. The dawn came late and the breakfast had to wait when the gales of November came slashing. When afternoon came, it was freezing rain. In the face of a hurricane west wind When supper time came The old cook came on deck Saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you p.m. a main hatchway gave in He said, fellas, it's been good to know ya The captain wired in, he had water coming in And the good ship and crew was in peril And later that night when his lights went out of sight Came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald Does anyone know where the love of God goes When the waves turn the minutes to hours The searchers all say they'd have made Whitefish Bay If they'd put 15 more miles behind her They might have split up or they might have capsized They may have broke deep and took water all that remains is the faces and the names Of the wives and the sons and the daughters Lake Huron Rose Superior sings 
in the rooms of her ice water mansion. Old Michigan steams like a young man's dreams. The islands and bays are for sportsmen. And farther below Lake Ontario takes in what Lake Erie can send her. The iron boats go as the mariners all know with the gales of November remembered. Chigumi. Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. 